Welcome to The Order of Things. I'm your host, Alec. Every episode, we take a look at the ideas and history that structure the world around us. And if you like the podcast so far, you can help others discover it by leaving a review. It'd mean the world to us. On today's episode, I talk to Lynn Siegel about happiness and its downfalls. We also talk about our collective anxiety about aging, and at the end, I have her react to some of the most popular self-help books, Marie Kondo, for our work week. It's great. And just a heads up, Lynn had some technical difficulties with her audio. We've done what we could to clean it up. Today's guest is Lynn Siegel, a professor of psychology and gender studies at Birkbeck College. She's the author of Radical Happiness, Moments of Collective Joy, and Out of Time, The Pleasures and Perils of Aging. Welcome, Lynn. Oh, hi. Let's talk about happiness. Everywhere people are told to be happy, the UN ranks countries with their World Happiness Report. Young people feel an immense pressure to feel fulfilled by happily pursuing their passions. And you write that even the British government has invested heavily in happiness. Uh, and you think we should be skeptical of that. Can you describe why? Well, yes. There's so many reasons why I'm skeptical. First <laughs> up, it's never really very clear what exactly is being measured in these world rankings. And they create a pressure on individuals because happiness is seen as some type of inner attribute, even though few emotions, I suggest, least of all happiness, arrive in any pure form, you know, untouched by hints of their opposite. Because what makes us happy also makes us vulnerable. So we're happy one minute, but uh, we're also rather afraid about what happened in the next minute. And secondly, this interest in happiness, it easily blurs into tools of social control. So we're expected, even commanded, to be happy, it seems. And as many people have noted today in many workshops, Workers are literally told to put on that cheery face when facing the public alongside a stubborn refusal to admit that it's the long hours and workplace competitiveness, low wages and so on, that underpins much workplace misery. So, you know, a lot of workplaces are very unhappy places. We know all about Amazon because many people have talked about it where workers have regularly reported quite soul-crushing conditions in Amazon warehouses and as ex-workers confirm, no one is ever really very happy or smiling except those who are paid to do so because they're facing the public. So there's a lot of pressure to hide our actual feelings and project an upbeat self or else we might lose our jobs or just feel in some way inadequate. So that's why I'm suspicious of, of all the talk about and measuring of happiness. And when you say... Happiness is often met with its opposite. Do you just mean a, a kind of long, sustained happiness? Is that is it impossible or does it kind of wash away any complicatedness of these emotions? I think it definitely hides the fact that, you know, we don't just have pure emotions for very long. There's always a lot of other things going on as well. And when I look at the history of how people have understood and talked about happiness, it's not just some inner state that we can measure and then um, present to the world 
as the happiness quotient of our country. So if we look back, for instance, to the way in which Aristotle talked about eudaimonia, or even all the best literary descriptions of happiness today seem to me to make it clear that it's not best seen as some inner or static quantifiable state detached from the world around us. So, you know, from Spinoza to, to from Aristotle to Spinoza and many others, I think happiness is best seen as a way of being in the world, a way of acting in the world or a type of energy that attaches us to life. And that can include negative as well as positive things. You know, it's not just some one set thing. It's what enables us to be together with others and at the best of times feeling good when we're together with others doing things that we see as meaningful and important. That's the sort of thing that if you look at the literature on on happiness outside of the quantified measurements of it, it seem to make most sense. It seems to me that it's important to register that we become ourselves and feel valued only through the recognition of others. And yet, you know, in today's precarious world, that's what many people often find hard to feel. They don't feel particularly valued and they just feel instead they've got to somehow cultivate this inner thing happiness. And that's to me quite problematic. For Aristotle, if I'm recalling correctly, the eudaimonia, uh, eudaimonia, sorry if I'm mispronouncing that, but it is often tied to virtue and, and doing well. Is that correct? Right. He's always thinking of the upright uh, citizen, uh, in particular the philosopher like himself, uh, who's able to lead a virtuous life, able to lead a virtuous life along with his friends who whom he will always value that friendship and, and and being out there doing the right things in the world that's that's what creates a sense of well-being a good feeling that he he describes as eudaimonia and, and he also defines eudaimonia which is where we get our word for hedonism as exactly what we consider as happiness today correct Yes, probably, probably. I haven't, um, I, I didn't spend too long on Aristotle. I was just trying to get straight that he saw this okay. as a way of being in the world, and particularly, as you say, a way of being virtuous in the world. So beyond Aristotle, well, you write that happiness is usually seen today as a distinct and measurable state of mind. However, this is not always so. We just talked about Aristotle. What, what were some of the other ways that this was conceived? Well, I mentioned Spinoza, who saw um, um, happiness or joy in particular as a type of energy that enables us to be out there in the world, not so different from Aristotle and, and then later on Deleuze takes up that up as well. The type of energy that just enables us to um, be able to use all our capacities to the full, that's, that's the sort of thing that philosophers have had in mind when they've talked about happiness. And so how would you, uh, you use happiness and joy? Uh, can you provide a, a definition of either or both, or is that a little impossible? <laughs> I think um, I'd like to move on to joy because I think that the stress on happiness, which I see as more a passing sense of fulfillment and satisfaction and so on that's you know we're happy i think when we're most 
absorbed in whatever we're doing, whatever it is that we're doing, um, just feeling good about ourselves. That's when I think that um, we're most happy, when we're not really thinking about happiness at all. That's why it's hard to define. So um, Hegel, for instance, says the uh, pages on happiness are written in white because you know, because we're not we're not thinking, am I happy now? When in fact we're absorbed in things, and when we look back on them, think I was happy then. So it's easier for me to think about joy because I think those moments that we recall as moments of joy, which are very important and we kind of can look back on easily, are uh, when we're together with other people in moments that um, we will go on to celebrate, you know, we'll go on to recall. And what I point out in my book is that there's much, not much official talk about happiness today. And I think that the reason that there's not much talk of happiness or coll as collective joy is that this is always an emotion that moves us outside ourselves, you know, that in precisely enables us to escape that never-ending project of self-monitoring and, you know, trying to be happy, trying to make the right impression. It's when we can lose ourselves in, in something else, whether it's something beautiful or something spiritual, or often for people like me, it's moments of political joy when we think we're, we're out there with other people and um, doing just the things we want to be doing. You know, if you think of uh, many of those huge um, outbursts of um, uh, street performance and so on that have happened in recent times, you know, the day after the election of Trump, for instance, you get tens of thousands of people out on the street. You know, they don't like what's happening, but just being there saying that, saying, here we are, we're still here, and we're still going to engage in the world as we want to and say what we want to think. That it, it's, it's precisely getting away from the everyday competitive formulas of, of, of trying to know that um, we're the right sorts of people just in and of ourselves. It's escaping from that that I think um, are the more joyful moments in our lives. I don't mean to throw you a curveball. So you give collective joy in one sense of uh, uh, protest, but also public festivals. Yes, that's right. Mm -hmm. is, is this kind of joy heavily tied in modern culture, uh, especially in Britain where you're from with, with soccer or football, as, as you would call it? It is, it is nowadays um, tied to events that often uh, are competitive on the one hand, or you have to pay a great deal of money to get to them, like, for instance, um, a music festivals such as at Glastonbury you might have heard of. And certainly there will be collective highs and collective joys, joy there, and they will be men memorable events, but that tends to be reserved for those who can afford them. And I find that a problem because I think we need far more free festivals and far more spaces where we can have them. I think one problem we have today is the um, market taking over all 
all public spaces. You know, people talk about the need for the commons and so on, and the enclosure of the commons that happened with the growth of industrial capitalism. That you know, there are not so many spaces where we can just be there. Of course, that was what the Occupy movements were all about a few years ago, when people just said, "We're going to make this our space," and um, it can be hard to find the places and spaces um, that are are open for everybody just to come and commingle and be together nowadays. I think the Occupy example is interesting because there was so much language about reclaiming a space and turning a space into something else. Um, you write your book very interestingly about the, the history of collective joy, uh, specifically what could be considered like the carnivalesque, uh, and a long history of the church suppressing these moments of collective joy. Can you just describe that history a little bit? Yes, yes. Well, a, a few people have written about that. Um, in fact, your own writer, Barbara Ehrenreich, had a lot to say about that. In um, She looked at the history of the suppression of most of the earlier forms of free and spontaneous public carnivals and other festivals that were usually tied in with religious events, but they weren't exactly being organized by the church. And in fact, the church would soon be stepping in to try and prevent them. But um, in the Middle Ages, you would get um, many, and before, many public festivals round about the time of Easter in which people would be dancing in the streets, wearing masks and, you know, being as playful and actually getting as high and often, I'd have to say, as drunk and so so on as they actually <laughs> could. So it's it's a time of, of carnival and in, not only in Western culture, but in other cultures in particular, you know, in the Caribbean, the time of carnival is incredibly important. And one of the pioneers of, of sociology, Emil Durkheim, talks about the role of such festivals in uh, affirming community belonging and in creating what he calls collective effervescence, which is a word sometimes people want to bring back again. What we need is more collective effervescence. But that's precisely what that other father of sociologist Max Weber described as disappearing with the advent of capitalism and the beginning of um, so much more focus on an individualistic competitive spirit, which um, capitalism brings with it. So that's what um, um, uh, he wrote, what Weber wrote about in the Protestant ethic and the spirit of capitalism that um, from um, the 16th, 17th century onwards, you begin to get more and more disdain for that sort of um, public uh, festival, which, for instance, um, Mikhail uh, Bakhtin wrote about writing from Russia, those festivals in which, you know, parody was very important. People could change roles. You get a joyful affirmation of collective existence precisely working against any form of doer individualizing principles and, um, and and the um stamping out of those festivals by the church by the state by local authorities becomes ever more prominent in modernity from the 18th 19th century and of course um, um nowadays 
what we would call that Protestant ethic, the need to be individually improving ourselves, uh, is so strong. It's probably never been more powerful, I think, than it is today. I think this divide between collective joy and individual happiness is really interesting. And another thing you write about is the birth of psychiatry, and you contrast that with the work of uh, Durkheim. So, so on one hand, mental illness today is highly individualized. We focus on brain chemistry and genetic predisposition. But at the founding of psychiatry, uh, there's its founder, and then there's uh, Emil Durkheim, who wrote about the social influence of suicide versus the, the founder of psychiatry, who talked about the genetic factors. Um, can you talk a, a little bit more uh, about that? I think the term is anomie, where Durkheim imagines the cause of suicide as being very social. Yes, that's right, yes. And he found that um, certain communities, for instance, um, Catholic communities had less um, um, suicide than um, other communities. Um, and that was because there still was more emphasis on collectivity and on, um, you know, not just on your own self-pleasing. And um, so what I think I'd like to talk about is that I think the emphasis on happiness today is a cover for the fact that what we're really seeing is not um, uh, an increase in any forms of happiness, but rather soaring rates of crippling depression and chronic anxiety. That's that's really what we're seeing around the globe. And we get from the World Health Organization that actually one in four of us are likely to suffer from depression. So the trouble with seeing this as an individual problem, which does go back to what, what uh, Durkheim said about uh, suicide and anomie living in a society where there's very little sense of collectivity, is that these um, pathologies are incredibly highly rated with people's situation in life generally. So they're, they're highly rated with structural inequality, which all sorts of researchers around the world, and particularly here, people like Michael, Michael Marmot and others have been showing for many years the quite devastating effects of unemployment and inequality and just the... Um, diverse catastrophes really that can um, come from from extreme poverty in causing devastating levels of personal anxiety and and self-harm and other forms of injury but we also know that self-harm is increasing increasingly appearing at ever younger ages for instance in girl in um, young girls you find extraordinarily high numbers of self-harm and, of course, increasingly high amounts of suicide in young men. So the way in, so the way in which this sense of competitiveness and individual failure of not measuring up properly affects us will vary across gender and across all the um, different groups to which we belong. And so that suggests to me that we're not dealing with something that's best seen primarily in individual terms, unless we place the individual you know, within the social world that they're operating in and why that social world is causing such stresses that they're going to behave in very pathological behaviours. 
Do you think we can understand the opioid epidemic in this context, at least here in the States? We see pockets of addiction everywhere, but specifically in kind of downtrodden areas, places with not a lot of economic opportunity. Uh, yeah. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Yes. Yes. Well, it's it's quite clear from um, American researchers that there is a huge correlation between poverty and, and, and a sense of a community in decline. So some of the rural communities or some of the urban communities where there is no um, work available, those are all the places where drug addiction will be at its highest, as will all the other forms of um, uh, self-injury and violence towards others. And I think you know, what many people have written about today is not just escalating rates of depression, but linking those to degrees of loneliness and anxiety that, that come from just having no sense of your place in the world and, and the, you know, the, the groups to which you belong that should be able to support you also being places where there is a, a sort of collective melancholia. Valerie Walkerdine, for instance, talks about this in the old steel towns in Wales, in in um, the UK, where there's so few jobs for the men who used to work in that industry, and and you know some of them will be delivering pizzas or something like that. But the whole sense of community that came, whether it was from mining communities or or just working in 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 plants that have closed down, in car plants or other places, when they close down, you know, the the community dies with it. It's not just that people become poorer and there aren't jobs, but the life of the community dies with the economic collapse of, of firms and, and other um, technological and industrial change that just pass people by. And that's what many people see behind the the levels of um, resentment and um, and xenophobia that keep rising, that somehow the decline has to be blamed on someone else. It can't be understood as an economic problem that's been allowed to occur and that certain areas have been more or less al- allowed to um, decline and neighbourhoods to become more and more depressed so that the wealthier can move out of them and the poor will remain there. And of course, in the US, it's very much related to um, race and racism, who's going to be in those poorest areas in the declining old industrial areas such as Detroit and so on. So there's a lot of work, as you know, that shows that high rates of all sorts of um, social maladies will be connected to the deprivation in certain areas. But I I think apart from that, there is an increase in loneliness overall. That's what people like George Monbiot and so on have written about, that the, the, the climate of extreme competitiveness that has come with our sort of turbo capitalist moment is one in which so many people are going to feel themselves um, failing because every minute we're meant to be working on improving ourselves rather than, you know, out there relating to others in the community. Or, you know, we're actually going to be bringing in people from afar from the 
from the um, third world will be bringing in people to do the caring work, which once we would have had more time to do in the home. Or you can see why it is that um, we are facing a huge crisis of care because those who are doing the essential work, the completely essential work of you know just pe keeping keeping people going in the world, minding the children, making sure there are happy places for the children to be, um, are usually coming from outside of the areas in which we're trying to um, make livable. And what's more, those people we're paying to come and do the caring work, whether it's caring for the young or the old, because we've got such long working days and because, you know, this um, um, emphasis always on, you know, what's our value for the market, those who have been taking up the, um, the slack in um, our inability to provide for our own caring needs will be themselves being underpaid in in um, you know, usually immigrant workers coming from elsewhere, often with few rights and so on. And so instead of saying, we've got to absolutely think again about um, how do we create caring worlds, instead of doing that, what we do is blame those who are actually often performing the caring work for um, somehow being responsible for everybody's um for not doing their jobs properly and so you know we blame immigrants we blame um all the people we should be most see ourselves as most indebted to but there's something wrong with the whole situation you know we should all be able to see ourselves as universal caretakers it seems to me you know caretaking is what we should be thinking about and of course in the um world that we're in now facing climate change, seeing how, you know, the patterns of consumption that that we've been engaged in and that have been promoted um, for us to engage in are ones which um, are simply not creating sustainable communities and placing, as we know, whole environmental catastrophe um, in play. So, you know, we, we have to start thinking again, it seems to me, about how we relate to the world and how we relate to issues of care, issues of the environment and so on. I, I think care is an interesting topic. And you told me earlier that this is your forthcoming book is on care. And you described all your books as kind of sequels to each other. Um, is it that care is an affirmation of community in a sense, or, or family, that this notion of the autonomous human is a little bit of a myth or an unhealthy myth, and that care allows us to connect with others? Well, I think that's right. I think that um, those who imagine they're the most autonomous, especially the wealthy, are almost always those who depend most upon the labor and care of others. They couldn't exist without this. And it seems to me that what's really most basic about the human condition is the need we have for each other, the need for recognition and support from others. And, and so while we all want to be as autonomous as we can, and that, of course, is absolutely attached to the mantle of manhood. It's, it's primarily a delusion to think that we ever leave behind those that needs we're born with, 
dependence on others, whatever our age or our situation. <clears throat> so we'll all have different, you know, we'll all be different in terms of our <clears throat> strengths and capacities and uh, our ability to talk loudly without having to cough. Um, and yet we will always <laughs> be leaning <clears throat> upon each other and towards each other if we're to lead any sort of rich life. And so it seems to me that um, this notion of we should all be universal caretakers, not just caring within the family, not just trying to create friendlier environments at work, but you know, a care for the world. What, um, what Hannah Arendt uh, is referring to when she talks about um, uh, Amor Mundi, we have to care for the world. So it's at all levels. Uh, people like your um, uh, academic Donna Haraway over there uh, has written in one of her recent bit books, Make Kin, Not Family, and Make Kin, Not Families. It's not enough just to be looking after our own kids, for instance. We've got the whole notion of helicopter parenting now where we all <laughs> not just have to um, present ourselves in the, in the world as what's going to be um, most valuable for the market for getting on in life, but we have to produce kids who are going to be like that too. And so, you know, trying to get away from allowing the market and um, what's going to prove our profitability for the market to be ruling our lives, to get away from that, to almost be turning that upside down, to think about what is the world that we want? What, what are the sustainable jobs, the sustainable communities and so on? I mean, it's hard not to sound totally preacherly, isn't it? But, you know, there can be other ways of enjoying life, but you know, not, not many people are going to have the chance to escape from you know, really either huge, hugely overworking um, in their jobs or else being outside the workforce and becoming increasingly poor. So, you know, we just have to start again. And I think, you know, there are there is talk of forms of municipal socialism, and I think you have some over there actually where, you know, through creating the commons, through thinking again about how people will find decent homes, you know, how thinking again about how we care for each other and don't simply put the market in control is might offer some new way forward. It seems like that in, in Radical Happiness, you talk about our societal obsession with dystopia. We've got the Hunger Games, the Maze Runner, which is not very good, by the way, uh, Divergent, which I haven't seen, 1984, Fahrenheit 451 just had a remake. Uh, the Handmaid's Tale, of course, is wonderful, but you want to re resurrect the importance of utopia. Uh, uh, my inclination is it has a little bit to do with this care concept, if you want to describe that. Oh, very much so. But um, it is interesting to reflect on the fact, isn't it, that it is dystopias, not utopias, that capture the popular imagination nowadays. Um, I tend not to see them myself, but I read avidly about them, <laughs> whether it's The Hunger Games or... <laughs> or, or um, you know, Blade Runner or all the other ones that you've mentioned, Fahrenheit 451, or um, here we have Never Let Me Go from Ishiguru where people are being bred simply for their body parts. And, of course, we know that 
you know, these practices happen in the world. People, poor people are selling their body parts and women's wombs are being used to create babies in poorer parts of the world, such as India, that are going to be um, adopted by people in the richer parts of the world, not adopted because they're their their wombs are actually being used, so they're they're being occupied and then going to be handed over uh, in other parts of the world. So so that dystopic imagination reflects something about people's fears about what's happening in the moment, um, and that's what has become box office hits and so on. So clearly, that it seems to me almost a type of fear and paranoia writ large at the moment, um, and yet. You know, it's it's equally clear to me that some sort of um, more hopeful or more utopian spirit is just absolutely necessary for us to have hope for the future, to have hope for our children, to have hope even that there's going to continue to be a world for us to uh, live in. So rather than just um, accommodating to you know, what we know to be some of the worst aspects of the present, uh, it seems to me we have to try and think differently. So, you know, to move away from that dystopic thinking into just, you know, determinedly in the face, in the face of what's going on in the world, to put forward some other view. I mean, that's why the young flocked to Corbyn here. It's why... Um, Bernie Sanders had such support as he did before. It's why today Congresswomen like uh, Ilhan Omar and Acacia Cortez are sort of the flavour of the month for young people because, you know, we need to think that things could be different. You know, we, we have to encourage those who believe that they really could make a difference if if we work together to try and create, you know, another way of living in the world. So I don't think we can ever abandon the desire to see that sort of change as possible, even if we remain, you know, intellectually a little despairing about uh, how far away we've got. I want to shift gears a little bit. Your book that you wrote after Radical Happiness is on the perils and pleasures of aging. I have to admit, I just turned 30, so the concept of aging has just really dawned on me. I hope I don't sound insulting there. Um, how can we understand happiness or joy as we age? Yeah. Well, we're living ever longer, but people are getting frightened of aging ever younger. You know, they you can find right. um, you know, women in journalism and so on uh, in their late 20s already worrying about aging. And this is because most aging is still popularly understood as a sort of seamless process of decline. Right. And that's partly because all, you know, if we look at advertising, you know, where, where people are most um, dis- displayed as enjoying their lives, it's always the young people cavorting around and so on. And, of course, there are genuine losses with aging and the older we get, you know, the more friends we all lose, the more fragile we may become in many ways, but um, I don't think, I think, I think it's our attitudes towards fragility, weakness and dependence that are so wrong and despite the way in which these times have, you know, encouraged us to disavow 
dependency and disavow our own fragility and weakness, which which I think we all have. So, you know, it's not the case that the dependencies and needs of childhood are just cast aside as we grow. They're always there. There's just different ways in which, you know, our needs to be with others and to gain respect from others will um, hopefully at the best of times, uh, be satisfied. So in Out of Time, I write about the, you know, the very different ways in which people try to confront rather than merely rage against or disavow all the, you know, the losses that come with ageing. But, you know, the main loss is the ways in which we're aged by culture, the ways in which uh, women faster than men are seen as invisible, are no longer seen as attractive. You know, it it becomes harder and harder to say, look, here I am and I'm still the same as I've always been. I may be physically frailer, but I'm still me. I mean, the truth is that no matter what age we are, psychically, you know, in our heads, we haven't really changed very much. And so for me, affirming ageing means confronting that cultural disparagement of the elderly as well as our own fears as you say you're only 30 but I don't know if you've already (laughs) begun to worry about aging but many people at 30 do begin to worry about aging because you know we have to battle the prejudices that are associated with old age and 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 nowhere more than that prejudice against um dependency and we begin by doing that, I think, by, by acknowledging how dependent we all are and also the need the needs we have for each other, both to care for each other as well as be cared for. So that, you know, we've gone in a slightly circular way, perhaps around my current <clears throat> concern with care and that affirming old age then for me becomes, you know, finding those spaces of um, resistance in which we can actually speak out about our need for each other still, whatever our age. So, for instance, in the book I quote um, Simone de Beauvoir, who was terrified of ageing from quite early on and you know couldn't bear looking in the mirror when she was still a very handsome woman of 50. But uh, in um, the prime of life, she concludes by being so fearful of what it's going to mean to age, although later when she writes her book on old age in 1970, she concludes that by saying, our lives have meaning so long as we attribute value to the life of others by means of love, friendship, indignation, or compassion. So it's that many people, we have many guides um, that I talk about in the book, you know, such as Adrian Rich and others saying um, uh, that in late life, you know, to the extent that we're still there thinking about others, even if our own pain, we connect to the pain of others, that, you know, that gives our life meaning. And that means, you know, we have something to say, we have a way of engaging in the world. And so it's this um, reaching out to others, it seems to me, and seeing that, um, you know, when we're together, we come in all stripes of red, green, and gray, that there's going to be many of us and and the extent to which we can learn from the experiences we've had. You know, old people have a lot 
to share with young people. And young people, if they talk to old people, might be a bit less fearful of the processes of aging. You know, the fact that we do remain the same people we've been unless we have serious problems with um, cognitive decline. But even in cognitive decline, there are still things we can respond to, to music, to colour and so on. And so just rethinking what ageing is about and, and, and how the old as well as the young can be valued in our communities is, is what I was writing about in Out of Time. I have to ask, in your research of happiness, you're a professor of psychology. Do you uh, keep informed about the sort of pop culture self-help books that are out there? Not so much. (laughs) (laughs) Well, if you'd indulge me, I almost as a little lightning round, I have a list. And if you haven't heard of it, fine, I can describe it and just give your immediate reaction. Doesn't have to be long. It could be a sentence or a word or a couple sentences. Uh, Have you heard of The Secret? I think I've heard of it, but I'm ready. The the idea that it's a concept called positive the law of positive attraction, where thoughts alone can will your dreams into existence. So, for instance, if you really need a parking spot, if you just imagine in your head that parking spot, the universe will deliver it to you. Oh yes, good heavens! <laughs> <laughs> We'd have no poverty and no inequality <laughs> at all, would we? <laughs> The, the next one is, I find it fascinating because I think it's both indicative of some form of late stage capitalism uh, and the opposite of that, which is uh, there's a book called The Life-Changing Magic of Tidying Up uh, by Marie Kondo. And the idea there for anyone who's not familiar is that you take all your possessions, usually clothes, but kind of everything, put them in a big pile and anything that sparks joy, like the feeling of holding a puppy you keep and everything else you say thank you to and you let it go. Now on one end, that's weirdly uh, anti-capitalist in the sense of we should have less and appreciate it more, uh, but I'm not quite convinced. Do you have any thoughts? (laughs) I wish I could manage any of that. uh, (laughs) I do know that some people do use condo and say that they have found it helpful to think about they can try and get rid of some of the accumulated possessions we've had by uh, simply thanking them for their service and chucking them away. <laughs> I wish I could. I, I just uh, never managed to. <laughs> by the way, on the um, secret of fantasizing that we can get what we want and we'll get it, I think um, – What's so problematic about that when I think again is um, relates to the notion that Lauren Berlant talked about cruel optimism, which is precisely a part of that cult of self-help and happiness. The idea that um, we can get what we want if we really want it hard enough. And uh, I think that's that really is dangerous. I don't see Kondo as dangerous in quite I don't see condo condo as dangerous at all. I I find it interesting and strange. So the next one might be the most nefarious, in my opinion. Uh, are you familiar with the four hour work week? Ah, it is a guy who says his method is that you can get by in life by only working four hours a week and using the rest of the time to pursue your passions. The way he does that is he gets overseas virtual assistance. Uh, to do the bulk of his work uh, so that he can learn three languages and become a jujitsu master and all this other stuff. I don't 
find that idea ridiculous. I just think he's, um, his four hours isn't right and he must be thinking of paid work. And I think we have to rethink the whole notion of work. But I do think um, shorter paid working hours is crucial and going to be even more crucial with with increasing automation. So over here, for instance, our, um, we have various groups who are campaigning for much shorter working week, like a 15-hour working week. But we'll have to get there gradually. And also, we'll have to see that we're talking about paid work because there's all sorts of other work we're doing all the time, caring work and, you know, and, and if work could be more enjoyable, then um, if we could be more doing the work we want to do, like the work I've always done, I've mostly enjoyed. I enjoy teaching. I, the other things that I do are often voluntary forms of work in the community, and they're all, you know, they are work, but they're also what I want to be doing. So do we call looking after our children work, wages for housework? I think it's very important to call that work because it is work. But it's also uh, we have to free up what we mean by work so that work is no longer simply attached to the sorts of alienated labor which many people are doing. So if the argument is we only need to do four hours of alienated labor <laughs> a week, <laughs> then um, I suspect we have to do more than that. But nevertheless, um, um, a shorter working, a shorter paid working week seems to me an, in, an important thing to think about, very important thing to think about, because mostly, you know, we're overproducing commodities and then busy selling commodities, which it would be better were not produced in the first place and we weren't busy trying to sell them. So, you know what, if we could rethink in terms of the green utopias that um, uh, I think it would be nice to put our minds towards, then that would involve different conceptions of work. Probably we'd still be working more than four hours a week if, mm. if we had my notion of work. <laughs> Thank you so much. Okay. Uh, Lynn Siegel, she's the author of Radical Happiness, Moments of Collective Joy. It is out now. It's been out as well as Out of Time, The Pleasures and Perils of Aging. Her work on care is forthcoming, but it's called Lean on Me, I believe tentatively. Uh, thanks for being here, Lynn. Thanks so much, Alec. Thanks again for listening. Be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcast. And if you want to support us, be sure to leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you're listening. And you can get in touch on Twitter at Crit Theory. That's C-R-I-T Theory.